Today we're going to continue to make our way through the epistle, picking up here today in the third chapter and verses one through six will be our uh, text today. But once again, let me remind you that the, um, the author here, it, of course, we're, we're continuing on. So he, he continues to do all the way through the epistle. He continues to essentially do the same thing. He shows uh, the superiority of Christ over all uh, those that came before him. He began with the angels, and now he moves secondly into dealing with the superiority of Christ over Moses, who, of course, was this towering figure in the minds of the Jewish people. But he's going to show the superiority of uh, Christ to Moses. And, and he's doing this always with that... Um, with that perspective of helping the people hold fast to their faith. They were, they were being severely tempted to, to go back, to go back to Judaism, to go back to what was comfortable, to go back to what was secure. And he's warning them over and over again not to do that. Because in doing that, in, in going back to the old system, it, it's a system that God is no longer engaged in. And to do that would be to actually uh, depart from God himself. So that's what he's continuing to do as we pick up here in this third chapter. And to summarize the verses that are before us real quickly before we read them, uh, in summary, this is what he's saying in these verses, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, is high above Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, inasmuch as Jesus is the son of God and Lord over his house, whereas Moses was the servant of God who was faithful in the house. And so with that, verse one of chapter three, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one, Christ, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony to those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. And so the first thing he does as he carries on now is he, he reminds his uh, readers of their true identity. And it seems that even in this, they had sort of forgotten. So he reminds them, and he refers to them as, as holy brethren. Now, you see, under the law, there, there was no way to ever attain to holiness in the fullest sense. As, as long as you were under the, that system, that mosaic system, there was a, a continual need for sacrifices and so forth to take place in order to you know, keep the people holy in the sense that they could, uh, they could experience God's presence. But now through the work of Jesus and the ultimate sacrifice that's been made, they are 
holy brethren now. There's no longer this, this striving for that. There's no longer this uh, need for the continual sacrifices to be offered and so forth. So even in referring to them as holy brethren, he's reminding them of their true identity. He's reminding them of something that they, they presently possess that they don't want to even think about losing, which they would actually lose if they were to go back under the old system. So he refers to them as holy brethren. And secondly, he speaks uh, of their heavenly calling. And, and so once again, it's a reminder. They, they seem to have lost sight of their heavenly calling. And they were, in a sense, ready to forfeit their heavenly calling for security and comfort here on earth. So, so he's reminding them that you know, even though they might be struggling, even though they might be going through difficult times, even though they might be living in the midst of persecution, their citizenship is in heaven. And so they're, they're to put their focus on heaven and not on the earth. So he reminds them there of their true identity. And then he says to them that they are to consider the apostle and high priest of their confession. The apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now, this is the only place where Jesus is ever referred to as um, with the term apostle. But in case you don't remember, the word apostle means one who is sent. And so even though this is the only place where the, uh, the term is actually applied to Jesus, the idea is stated over and over in scripture. Jesus himself oftentimes would make reference to the fact that he was sent by the Father. And so again, what the author is saying here is just as Moses was sent as an apostle, so to speak, by God to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he also mediated between God and the people, so Jesus is, as Tim Keller would say, the true and better Moses. The true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates the new covenant. So just as Moses was in a sense the apostle and the the priest over the old system, now Jesus is the apostle and the high priest over the new system. And so it's at this point that he's going to go on and he's going to show the superiority of Christ to Moses. Now, this was a very delicate uh, subject and a very difficult one to approach because of the, the deep regard and the high respect that the Jewish people had for Moses, and rightfully so. Moses was God's servant, and the author here does not denigrate Moses even slightly. He, uh, he speaks of Moses as that, that true servant of the Lord, but he also makes it clear that Moses was a servant in the house and Christ is the son over the house. But in, in speaking to them about Moses, as I said, this would have been a highly uh, sensitive thing to address. Uh, Adolf Safir, I made reference to him previously, uh, he wrote about this and the challenge that it would have been. 
And he knew it firsthand because he himself was a Jew who came to put his faith in Christ. And, and later in life, when he went into ministry, he, uh, he became really a missionary to his own people. So he, he, I think he expressed well what uh, the challenges would have been. He wrote this. He said, to speak of Moses to the Jews was always a very difficult and delicate matter. It is hardly possible for Gentiles to understand or realize the veneration and affection with which the Jews regard Moses, the servant of God. All their religious life, all their thoughts about God, all their practices and observances, all their hopes of the future, everything connected with God is with them also connected with Moses. Moses was the great apostle unto them, the man God sent unto them the mediator of the old covenant. And we cannot wonder at this profound reverential affection that they feel for Moses. You read in the gospels and in the book of Acts with what joy and pride they said, we are the disciples of Moses. It was their glory and boast. And we cannot wonder at this when we think of Moses, of his marvelous history, of his grand character, of the unique position assigned to him in the history of God's people and the wonderful work given him to perform. So Moses was a great man indeed. And so the author, as he's going to address this and as he's going to uh, remind them of the superiority of uh, Jesus to Moses, he's obviously going to do that in the most sensitive way possible. And so that, that was the, the ancient Jewish perspective on Moses. But it's interesting that Moses is still today a very um, prominent figure uh, in many cultures around the world. Because just as the ancient Jews or the, the Jews in the time of uh, the writing of this epistle held Mo- Moses in high regard, it is true today that he is held in high regard by uh, the modern Jew and those in uh, the state of Israel today. They, they highly revere Moses. Moses is revered by Christians and also by Muslims. As a matter of fact, Moses is mentioned in the Quran more than any other person. Interesting. More than any other person. I mean, you would think Muhammad, you would think that some one of these other you know, prophets, but Moses actually is mentioned more in the Quran than any other person. So it just shows you the, the high regard that um, Moses is still held in, in, in many different cultures. Uh, the legislation of many nations has been influenced by the Mosaic law. And even in pop culture, we find that there are uh, many continuing references to Moses, uh, films about Moses, the great Cecil B. DeMille uh, epic, The Ten Commandments, or uh, the DreamWorks production, The Prince of Egypt, uh, or the more recent Exodus, God and Kings. These all attest uh, to the ongoing influence of this man, Moses. Many see Moses as the founder of a great religious system along with other religious figures like Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad. But let's just be clear that that is the wrong um, view of Moses, especially 
in relation to Jesus, who, as we see here from the text, is Moses' Lord. So the, the common idea that, you know, you have a number of different religious figures in history who the religions were established by, and of course Moses would be Judaism. Uh, this is an inaccurate uh, perspective uh, according to the scripture and especially according to the New Testament. And so in the passages that we read, beginning in verse 3, what we have here is uh, really a comparison and a contrast between Jesus and Moses. And so what does it say? It says, first of all, actually in verse two, speaking of Christ, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was also faithful in all his house. So in comparing Jesus with Moses, they were both faithful to God. That's the comparison. Moses was the faithful servant uh, who brought in that, that old dispensation, Jesus is the faithful servant who has brought in the new covenant. But then the contrast, as he goes on, he says, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. So the contrast is that Moses is a member of the house, or the idea here is the household, but Jesus is the builder of the house. And of course, the builder has more honor than the house itself. And then Moses was God's servant. Jesus is God's son, and he is the ruler over the house. So those are the comparisons and the contrasts that he makes. But the fact of the matter is Moses was as others are, Moses was a type of Christ. Many of the Old Testament figures, their lives uh, foreshadowed in many ways the life of Christ. And that's true with um, many in the scripture. Isaac is probably the first uh, real example that we, we find of that, a type of Christ we see in Isaac where you remember Abraham offers his son, his only son that he loves on Mount Moriah. And that's a picture of God the Father offering his son eventually on that same mountain, Mount Moriah, which became uh, the place of the skull, uh, Calvary. Uh, then we have another uh, a, a picture of a type of Christ in Joseph. Joseph, the one who uh, suffered the ill treatment by his brothers and was cast out and imprisoned and rejected and all of that, but then became the, uh, the great ruler of the known world at the time and, and saved his family. So another picture there through Joseph, a type of Christ. And so likewise, Moses, he is also a type of Christ. It was Moses himself who prophesied that one day the Lord would raise up for the people of Israel a prophet like him. A prophet like him. Now Moses was unique in regard to the prophets. No other prophet uh, had the, the same kind of authority in a sense that Moses had. At least authority in uh, the, the sense of, of visible authority. Of course, Moses exercised the great power miraculous power in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And then Moses' word, the, the law, 
uh, became the, the foundation stone for uh, the nation of Israel. And, and so Moses, although the other prophets were equally inspired by God and so forth, they didn't really have the stature that Moses had. Moses said there would come a prophet who had that same kind of stature, and that was a prophecy concerning Jesus. And, and the distinction, one of the distinctions God made between Moses and the other prophets, he said, regarding the other prophets, he said, I speak to them through dreams, through visions, through different similitudes and things. But he said, Moses, I speak to him as a friend speaks to a friend. I speak to him face to face. And so this, this was the distinctive uh, between Moses and the other prophets. So Moses prophesies, and he says, there's, there's a prophet like me that God is going to raise up, and he will speak for God, and those who refuse to listen to him, they will be directly accountable to God for that. And that prophet, we know that that prophet was never identified by any of the successive prophets that came because when John the Baptist showed up on the scene to prepare the way for Jesus, the religious leaders who came from Jerusalem wondering who he was, they asked him, are you that prophet? So they were still looking for that prophet. He was not that prophet, but actually he was there to... Uh, prepare the way for Jesus, who was that prophet. So Moses prophesied about the coming of Christ himself. Um, you know, in, in that statement there in Deuteronomy 18, but in many other ways, we could, we could spend weeks and weeks going through the writings of Moses, which are Genesis through Deuteronomy, and we could find all kinds of references to the coming of, of the Messiah. But let's just take a minute and look at how Moses was a type of Christ. How the life of Moses foreshadowed the life of Christ. All the way back to the infancy of Moses. Remember that Moses in his infancy, his life was threatened by Pharaoh. Pharaoh had given a command that all of the male children that were born to the Israelites were to be taken and they were to be killed. And Moses was part of that. Moses was delivered uh, from that and actually brought into the house of Pharaoh and raised. But Jesus, many centuries later, had a similar kind of an experience as a young child when Herod the king gave the command to slay all of the male children from two years old and under that had been born in Bethlehem. So there was a, a parallel there uh, in their infancy. Uh, Moses left the royal palace to identify with his people in their oppression and affliction. And so in that, he was a type of Christ. Jesus left the royal courts of heaven. Jesus left the royal courts of heaven and came to earth. And so just as Moses uh, really condescended to identify with his people who were in slavery in Egypt, he leaves the palace, he goes there. Jesus leaves the courts of heaven and he comes here to the earth. Moses was initially rejected by the ones he came to deliver. He was received not the first time, but the second time. So as you read the story, Moses comes to the people and they, they reject him. And he actually flees to the desert. And it's 
40 years later that he returns. He comes back and then at this time he is, um, he's embraced as the deliverer. And so it is with Jesus as well. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. The first time at least. But we know that when he returns, we know that at his second coming, that those who pierced him will look upon him and and mourn as one mourns for an only son. They will then embrace him the second time. Moses worked mighty miracles. Like I said a moment ago, the, the miracles of Moses, there's no one in the Old Testament that compares to Moses in um, this area of the, the miraculous. The, the closest person to Moses would be Elisha. And Elisha's miracles were on a much smaller scale. Uh, they were much more personal. But of course, Moses was the instrument that God used to uh, perform these amazing, miraculous deeds um, primarily the plagues upon Egypt and the opening of the Red Sea to allow the, the, the people to pass through. And so likewise, Jesus did the works that no man has ever done. So this is where uh, when Jesus comes, now here's a prophet like Moses. He's doing the kinds of things that no one else has ever done. And although he doesn't do things on the scale that Moses did, because Moses was delivering the entire nation, Jesus does miracles that, that more affect individuals, but he, of course, heals the sick, he cleanses the lepers, he raises the dead. None of those things uh, did Moses do. Moses' uh, miraculous power was, was uh, manifested, or God's power through Moses was manifested to deliver the nation from bondage. Jesus, his power was manifested to deliver um, the individuals from the authority and, and dominion of Satan. And so we see that there is a, a likeness there. Uh, Moses, we read in scripture, was the meekest man on earth. All of this power, all of this authority, all of this favor with God, but yet we read concerning Moses that he was the meekest man on earth. And then, of course, Jesus he said that he was meek and lowly in heart. And so we see there Moses as a type of Christ. Moses interceded for his people and offered to be cut off from God if the people could be spared the judgment. And we find that, that, that great intercession of Moses. And this, of course, is really where we see Moses as a type of Christ Jesus didn't simply intercede. Jesus was cut off from God so his people could be spared judgment and given eternal life. So Moses intercedes. Jesus intercedes with his very life. And then Moses implemented the Passover and a sacrificial system that foreshadowed the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, Jesus is the lamb that was slain to take away the sin of the world. So it, whether it's in the Passover, uh, which is recorded for us in Exodus, or if it's in the, the sacrificial system that is established under the direction of Moses, all of this was speaking about 
Christ as the lamb who would be slain. Moses implemented those things. And then, just a couple of others. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So just as Moses set the foundation and gave the word of God, and and of course for the Israelites, it was always the law that they would go back to. And even the prophets who came and prophesied later, what were they always doing? They were always pointing people back to the Mosaic law. So so the law was the the whole foundation for the nation. And, And that came through Moses. Jesus comes and he establishes the kingdom of God. He establishes a new nation, really. He establishes the church. And of course, he brings grace and truth. He doesn't um, negate the law of Moses. He says he didn't come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. And so now in the new covenant, it is the, the word of Jesus. It is the authority of Jesus. It is the understanding of the law by Jesus that supersedes what Moses had given originally. And so in all of those ways and others, we see Moses as a type of Christ. But there's one other thing. And in this, it's interesting. It's not at this point so much that Moses is a type of Christ, but it's in this this one incident that we see something very interesting about the inability of Moses and the law in comparison to Christ. What Moses could not do, as great as Moses was, what Moses could not do was lead the people into the promised land. Moses couldn't do that. He wasn't allowed to do that by God. He had, on on this one occasion, he had failed God in the sense that he failed to represent the, the merciful heart of God to the people. And it was for that reason that God said Moses would not himself enter the promised land. He would not lead the people into the promised land. But it wasn't only for that reason. I think there's a bigger picture here. The bigger picture is showing us that Moses, who represents the law and the law itself, can never bring people into the promises of God. And so Moses couldn't bring the people into the promised land, but Joshua did. And some of you know this, the name of Jesus is actually Joshua. And so Joshua, who the author is going to talk about next in the order, uh, Joshua is a type of Christ in that Joshua led the people into the promised land where Moses was unable to do that. And so these are the ways that we see Moses, as as great as he was, he was a type of Christ. And Jesus is obviously, being God the Son, superior to Moses. And so, as we're told in verse 6, but Christ, he is a son over his own house, and then writing to them, and we are part of that household if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. And so this is where the author comes back uh, again to another exhortation, another warning uh, 
another warning concerning the possibility of, as, as he put it earlier, drifting away, uh, the possibility of um, losing our, our grip, the possibility of not holding fast the confidence. And so this was the, the very real challenge that the people in, in his day were grappling with. It was that challenge of holding on to their faith in, in the midst of the, the suffering, the persecution, and um, the things that were happening. And so, of course, there's application for us today as well. You know, there are many today who have, have drifted. There are many today who are not holding fast to their confidence. Uh, in, in some cases, people are drifting back into just life in the world. I had two different people talk to me after the first service telling me about family members, friends that they know who are, are Christians. They claim to be Christians. They used to be in fellowship. They used to be uh, committed and plugged in and involved. And now they're just kind of, you know, out there just sort of doing their own thing. Still Christians, but not all that excited about their relationship with the Lord and just more interested and preoccupied with the things of the world. It's a very real uh, danger that we face. But it's not only the danger of, of drifting back into the world. That's a very real danger. But, you know, we can just drift into religion. And that was, that was the issue here. They weren't going to go out and become heathens. They were just going to go back to the, the Jewish system. They were, they were going to go back to religion. And there is that danger, too, of, of moving away from a vital, um, living, vibrant relationship with the Lord and just going back and, and just becoming religious. And sometimes this happens over a process of time where at, at one season in our lives, we had this intensity, we had this passion, we had this deep desire to seek the Lord and know the Lord and follow the Lord and serve the Lord. And then we just kind of settle into complacency and we become religious and we're content with just some rules you know just give me some rules and I can keep a few rules and that'll be sufficient or you know I can just go to church and you know do that a few times a month and and that'll be adequate but the rest of my life I'm just gonna do my thing and be involved in the things that interest me and all of that so the danger that was there for them is present with us today. That danger of, of failing to, to hold fast, to hold firm to this, this vital relationship that we have. So here's the question, how do I, how can we make sure that that doesn't happen to us? Well, I, I pointed this out before, but let me remind you again the author here keeps going back really to the same thing. And what he keeps going back to is a, uh, a challenge for the people to, to really think about who Jesus is. You see, that's his method. His method is not simply to just chastise them and to tell them, look, you know, that you're, you're gonna be judged if you don't do this. You need to repent and get back. You know, he does give some, some pretty sharp warnings, but what he is primarily doing is he's going back and he's appealing to them to 
remember Jesus, to consider him. And that's what he says right here in the first verse. He says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. And as I've said before, I think this is the best way. It's, it's, the, it's the primary way that we keep ourselves from drifting away, that we keep ourselves from drifting back into the world and the flesh, but it's also the primary way that we keep ourselves from drifting just into religion and rules and, and church attendance and, and things like that, rather than a vibrant, vital, thriving relationship. We do that by constantly considering Jesus. That's the remedy. That's what he's telling us to do. He's telling us to consider. And the word consider here is an interesting word because the idea behind it is to fix one's attention in such a way that the significance of the thing is learned or to apply one's mind to diligently. You see, what he's saying is, he's saying you have to consider Jesus. And... I'm of the firm conviction that if we just could get a a glimpse of, of who Jesus really is, and we've been looking at that, but we just get a glimpse of who he really is and, and what he's done for us and the reality of this, the truth of all of this. If we can, if we just get a hold of this, this will keep us from loosening our grip. This will keep us from moving away from that confidence This will keep us from drifting because when I see Jesus in his magnificence, when I see him in his glory, when I see his uh, great sacrificial act and his deep love for me, it, it stirs my heart to want to engage with him. And so that's the remedy. That's what he tells us. He says that we are to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession And let me just give you four things practically that we we do in order to fulfill what he says here. It begins, first of all, with desire. It begins with desire. We, We need to desire the things of God. We need to desire to to know the Lord uh, beyond. Where, where we're at today. Listen, there's no plateau you ever arrive at in your relationship with God. There's no time that you ever get to a place and you say, you know what? This is as far as, as I can go. This is it. I, I've, I've gained all the knowledge and understanding and I've, I've had the, the deepest experiences possible with the Lord. That, that can never happen. God is un- unsearchable. He's unfathomable. We can never get to the depths of who he is. And so we can spend our whole lifetime, we could spend a hundred lifetimes seeking to plummet the depths of God's grace and his goodness and glory. And we, we, we would never discover it thoroughly. So it should be our desire to keep seeking that out. You think of the apostle Paul who after probably at least 20 years of knowing Christ and following Christ and serving Christ and and seeking him after probably 20 years, what does Paul say his great desire is? He says that I may know him, that I may know him experientially, that I may know the power of his uh, resurrection, that I may know the fellowship of his suffering. 
that I may be conformed to his likeness. So desire is a vital part of considering Jesus, desiring him. But it's possible that sometimes our desire is weak. And so the second thing we need is discipline. You see, it is possible because we're sinners. It is possible because uh, of just our, our condition as sinners that our desire can, can wane, that we might not always have that intensity that we should naturally have, that we might not always be moved to uh, a deeper pursuit of God when we think about the things of the Spirit. And because there's that possibility, there has to be this element of desire or this element of discipline. I have, to, I have to discipline myself. I have to push myself through those times when my desire isn't there. That's where discipline comes in. And just like anybody else, I have those seasons where my desire is lacking. Oh, I know that I should desire to seek God in a greater way, but it's just not there. My heart is hard. I get indifferent. I get distracted, all of these things. And it's like, oh, you know, my desire has, has sort of dried up. What do I do at those times? Do I just say, okay, well, I just don't have any desire. I'm going to wait till my desire returns. No, you can't do that. You can't wait for your desire. You can't let feelings govern you. you. This is where discipline comes in. You have to just press through it with discipline. You have to commit yourself to the very things that you know are going to... Um, cultivate your spiritual life and rekindle uh, the passion in your heart. You, you have to just press through those times of seeking the Lord, being in his word, being in prayer, being in worship. You ever have times where you just don't feel like worshiping? We're really a twisted people. You know, you think of all that, all that God's done for us and sometimes, you know, we're just so... Uh, unresponsive to his goodness and grace. We're so uh, ho-hum about uh, the whole thing. And, and how can that be? It's sad. It's true. It's just, it's part of the, the sinful condition. But, you know, I, I, I have to discipline myself to open my Bible even when I don't feel like opening my Bible, to take the time to stop and pray even when I don't feel like doing it, to engage in worship even though my emotions might not be there. But I do it, I discipline myself to do it. That's what we are to do. So desire, discipline, and then thirdly, there has to be concentration. You see, these things take a concentrated effort. If we just read over these things in a surface manner, we're never going to go to the depths that God intends us to go in. We have to go deeper, and the only way to go deeper is through concentration. We have to go beyond just reading the Bible. We have to meditate on the Bible. We have to study the Bible. I was having a conversation with somebody this week and they were, they were talking about a mutual friend who's been in ministry and all. And they said an interesting thing. They said, you know, I realized that they are more of a Bible reader than a Bible student or meditator. 
And I thought, well, the, you know, there is a difference there. And, and of course, there is a place for just simply reading the Bible, but not exclusively. We read the Bible, but we also want to meditate on it. We also want to study it because we have to go deeper. We have to concentrate. We have to think about these selves. And this is what he, we, these things, this is what he says. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. We have to consider that. So Jesus is the apostle. I need to think about that. He's the high priest of our confession. And, and all of these other things, it takes concentration. It takes time to stop and to think through these things. And that brings us to the last point here, which is time. Time allows for concentration. Concentration demands time. I can't concentrate if I'm too busy. If I'm in a hurry, I can't concentrate. You ever find yourself reading your Bible at times and you're just trying to read through it as quick as you can so you can get on to the next thing? That's not what we're talking about doing here. We do that. I do that. But that's not the way we should do it. It, it, it would be better than reading a whole chapter or two chapters and just getting through it as quick as you could so you could say you got your two chapters in. It would be better to take one verse and take that 15 or 20 minutes that it would take you to get through those couple of chapters. It would be better to take one verse and just think about it, concentrate on it. But you see, practically what we have to do is we have to make time. We have to make time. If, if I am too busy to focus in and concentrate on God's word, then I am too busy, period. And I have got to uh, adjust my life. I've got to make changes. I've got to do something different because this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing. And you know, if, if you just stop and think about that, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, the devil doesn't want anybody to think about anything. Have you ever noticed that? Man, especially anything serious. Just keep us on the surface. Just keep us going from one thing to another and our, our minds are going a million miles an hour with irrelevant, insignificant kinds of things. But, but man, don't let people stop and think about the, the real serious questions of life. Don't let people uh, stop and contemplate their eternal destiny or anything like that. No, the enemy keeps us going. Just our minds working overtime, uh, preoccupied with all of these things that have no eternal significance. We have to stop that cycle. We have to say, no, I I've got to think about this. I've got to ponder these things. I've got to meditate on these things. We have to take time. We have to make time. And as we stop and think, and I'm closing with this, as we stop and think, you know, we need to realize this, this is true. And, you know, we need to always ask ourselves the question, if this is all true, then what does that mean for me today? It's all true. Moses he really lived. He was a historical figure. He really did what the Bible says that he did. 
He really led Israel out of Egypt. He really led them uh, through the Red Sea by the power of God. He really wrote the, the, the law out. He really received the Ten Commandments from God. And all of this, of course, is part of this bigger redemptive picture. Moses really did that. And Jesus really came and he really lived in history and he really died on the cross and he really rose again from the dead. All of that's true. And if all of that's true, what does that mean to me today? We've got to ask ourselves these questions. We've got to stop and think about the truth of these things. And as we consider what it means that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession and many other things, these are the things that move us forward with the Lord. You know what we need to realize? Here's one thing I think is important that we realize. What uh, what Moses and the children of Israel were at, that, at the time uh, that they were here in history, we are today. They were the people of God. God was working among them. God was working through them. And guess what? That's who we are today. We are the people of God today in this generation. God is working among us. God is working through us. Just like he was uh, preparing for the redemptive work back in their day. So Jesus came and completed the redemptive work, but we're here to um, see the redemptive work of Christ implemented in the lives of people in this world. But you see, we have to stop and we have to think about those things. And we have to discipline ourselves to meditate on them. We have to make the time and it's only when we do that that we will be protected from the pull of this world back into sin and the flesh. It's only then that we will be guarded from just settling into complacency and into religion and into a few rules that I keep. No, we don't want that. We want to we wanna thrive. We want to live in a in a vibrant, vital, daily communion with God where just like Moses and the children of Israel and just like Jesus and the apostles and, and, and the other believers all throughout the ages that we're right there in the center of what God has for us. And we will do that if we do this one thing, if we consider Christ Jesus, if we keep pursuing him and keep him at the forefront of our desire and of our devotion. And so, Lord, help us to do that, we pray. Lord, help us to recognize how wonderful these things are. Help us, Lord, to grasp your greatness like we've never grasped it before. And Lord, as we do that, help us, Lord, really to just set aside the things that would pull us away from you potentially, the things that would uh, preoccupy us, the, the meaningless things, the things that would uh, distract us from pursuing you and experiencing your glory, your greatness, and as a result of that, in yielding ourselves to you and serving you. So, Lord, here we are today. We're asking you, Lord, to help us to do what your word is exhorting us to do. Help us to consider 
who you really are. And through that, Lord, would you just impact us powerfully? And would you use us in our day like you used Moses in his? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.